Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Welcome everyone. To remind you, we are on day number five and we just finished Kfarnahum and we went for having St. Peter fish for lunch, a fish lunch, very delicious, tilapia. And we are heading to the boat museum and then to the boat ride. And by the way, I done this in purpose, like after Jesus feeding the crowds, they went to the boat ride and we're going to talk about it in details. The group is arriving to Yigal Alon Museum in Kibbutz Gunusar. And this kibbutz have the ancient boat, which we're going to learn about. And the museum is a, an expression of Alon Egal humanistic approach in many areas of his life, Egal alone. He was born in October 10, 1918, one of the founders of Kibbutz Gunusar, and he alone was a pioneer, a commander-in-chief of the Palmach, you know, the Palmach is one of the orders of the IDFs. And he was an operational commander of the Southern Command in the War of Independence, 1948. He was an important political figure. And he played a big role in serving as the Ministry of Labor and the Minister of Immigration and Absorption. And he was a Minister of Education and Culture and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He had strong ties with Israeli Arabs too, and he believed in peace and reconciliation. And Igal died in February 29, 1980. So this museum is raised on his behalf and on his name and very symbolic of reconciliation. And this is why whenever we approach to get to the museum, before entering the glass window, if you look up to the top at the facade, at the cement, you're going to see drawings and you're going to see three languages also, Hebrew, Arabic, English. So it's all about reconciliation. Now, but the main thing why we are visiting the museum, because for the first time in history and in centuries, in 1986, when the lake was so much dried up completely and its level was way below historically as a result of a severe drought exposing all the area around the lake. There were two brothers from the kibbutz, kibbutz Kinosar here, Moshe and Yuval. And these two brothers from the kibbutz had a feeling that one day the Sea of Galilee will give them a gift. And both of them as fishermen and also marine archaeologists. One morning when they were walking on the beach, as I said, there was a big drought and the water were way back. One brother happened to step on a rusty nail. 
He got so excited and started to look for more nails. He discovered a piece of wood under the mud, and then another nail, and then another piece of wood, and a longer piece of wood, and they exposed under the mud an ancient boat. So this is where we are here to see this ancient boat that was discovered from 2000 years from the first century. And that discovery is a key turning point because it enhances our understanding of the context of the first century fisherman life. And immediately after they found the boat in the sky, two rainbows appeared upon the boat's discovery and something that no one probably has ever witnessed before. So now I will walk with the group to see the movie. And so many groups come here, they see only the short movie, but I like to put for the, my clients the longer movie. And it's around like 17 minutes and explains about in details the discovery of the boat itself. And this will be a good preparation and introduction for the people to know what is happening and why they are here. And it gives more meaning when they see the boat itself. And it will help the group to connect with the story and to learn about the discovery of this ancient boat from the movie. It's much more meaningful to see the movie first. And after the movie finishes, I will guide the group to go to see the room where the boat is exhibited. And when the door opens, everyone gets impressed and starts taking pictures and say, wow, they get so excited to see it. Because it's really impressive, but impressive in a way that it's not so big that people think. So the movie played a good role to introduce it. And it's not a big boat, it's a very small boat. And the group is allowed to take pictures, but not using the flash. The flash. And because the flash of the camera can cause some damage to the old pieces of wood. And inside this room, it's installed with special temperature to preserve the wood. And I will show them the rusty nails that they discovered in the glass box. And I'll show them the pot of jar that was found inside the boat, probably belonged to the fisherman to preserve his food. And there was another oil lamp found from the first century inside the boat. From the boat architect, it shows us and conforms to other boats built in that part of the Mediterranean during the period between 100 BCE and 200 AD and constructed primarily of cedar planks joined together by moisture of tenon joints and nails and the boat is shallow drafted with a flat bottom allowing it to get very close to the shore while fishing so we know from this architect it's specially made for fishing however the boat is composed of 10 different wood types suggesting either a wood shortage or that the boat was made of scrap wood and had undergone extensive and repeated fixes, which most scholars agree about that. And the boat was rowable with four stragged rowers and also had a mast allowing the fishermen to sail the boat. And that boat can fit easily few disciples. Let's get to the dating of the boat. The boat has been dated around 40 BCE, plus or minimum, based on carbon dating. 
and also it was dated around 50 BCE based on pottery because as I, as I mentioned earlier they found a cooking pot made of and a lamp made of pottery inside the boat remember also they found nails in the boat and the evidence of repeated repairs shows the boat was used for several decades perhaps nearly for a century and when its fishermen owners thought it was beyond repair they removed all useful wooden parts and they eventually sank the boat in the bottom of the lake there it was covered with mud which prevented bacterial decomposition and this is how they found it after 2000 years under the mud because it was not used anymore and the Galilee boat is historically very important to Jews and also to Christians as an example of the type of boat used by their ancestors in the first century for both fishing and transportation across the lake and we have some early Roman authors mentions about boats from the first century and mosaics had provided archaeologists insights into the construction of these types of vessels because we have mosaic of boats found one in Magdala and one also inside the Holy Sepulchre in one of the walls a painting a mosaic of a boat from the first century because boats also are symbols for Christians and this is also the same sort of boat used by Jesus and his disciples because as we know most of it like several of his disciples were fishermen when he called them and discovering a boat like this is important for Jesus life and ministry to learn more about it because boats are mentioned more than 50 times in the gospel though there is no evidence connecting the Sea of Galilee boat itself directly of Jesus or his disciples. So we are not sure 100% if Jesus used that boat or not, probably, but there is no evidence we can prove it. But the evidence shows from the mosaics that are found, these are typical boats, the same architect from first century for fishermen. And after the group taking pictures, I tell them, let us go now to the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. And all of them get excited to sail on the Sea of Galilee. So we will leave the museum and walk towards the dock. There will be the boat waiting for us. The water of the Sea of Galilee is so much high. Now we are May 2020 and never ever in the history of Israel we found this is the level of the Sea of Galilee that has risen and more than 10 feet over the past two years so the Sea of Galilee is like having its peak of water we had so much rain this season and last year that the Sea of Galilee is so full and this is a blessing now all the group is in the boat and there are the team members of the boat they get excited when they see me i gained so much friendship with everyone during the last 20 years of bringing groups to having a boat ride and not only here all the country twin stores groups have a great reputation because they are christ like people they shine they're well behaved and even 
Almost every supplier liked to work with twin stores. We paid them all in advance and never got delayed and we are straightforward kingdom business ministry and marketplace. Anyway, all the group are in the boat and there is some worship music that will be playing in the background until everyone gets seated in the boat. Then I will start teaching as usual. From the moment the boat will sail off, the crew will hand me the microphone. They know me very well. I will keep teaching till the moment the boat is back. The first sentence comes out from my mouth. Welcome to the Sea of Galilee. According to the Gospels, Jesus' earthly ministry was centered around the Sea of Galilee, what we see. Of course, there's important events took place in Jerusalem, but the Lord has spent most of his three years of his ministry along the shore of this freshwater lake. This is why this lake is so much important. Here he gave more than half of his parables, and here he performed most of his miracles in the northern western side of the lake, where are the Jewish towns. Let me point for you what we see first. I stretch both of my arms, a shape of a triangle, and tell the group, look where I am pointing. My right arm, this is the north, my left arm is the west. My face and body is facing northwest. And I say, 70% of Jesus' ministry was where I am stretching my arms between these two northern and western sides. My arm is like a triangle. So in this area where Jesus has spent most of his time, these are the Jewish neighborhoods. Where are the Jewish kosher towns? And they are under Herod Antipas' rule. Then I will point to the east side of the lake. And this is where there is the Decapolis, used to be the 10 Roman cities, the power, Rome, magnificent money, income, and we can see the site called Hippos. It's a mountain, one of the ten Decapolis, standing powerful by itself in the east far horizon, as you see. There was a Roman garrison station there, and this is what the Bible called, and Jesus called the city on a hill. It's the other side. Because Romans can afford the lights at night. And it's so dominant, as you see. And then I will point my arm to the left side of Hippos, of the mountain. There is like an open valley that goes all the way down like a U-shape. Then goes up, forming an open valley that connects with the lake. This is the site of Gadara, the demon-possessed man. The land of the Gadarenes. The story with the swines. And of course, that area is not kosher. It's pure Roman. And this is under the control of Herod Philip, the second brother. Then I will point my hand and stretch my arm all the way to the south, where the Jordan River exits the Sea of Galilee. They will not say it, but I will point it for them. And that's more south of there. I tell them that is Jerusalem. And that is the territory where Herod Archelaus, the third brother, ruled. 
When Jesus mentions in scripture, let us cross to the other side. Look what is written in Mark 4, 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. You have to remember every time Jesus said, let us go to the other side. They are moving from the kosher, the small religious Jewish towns, the simple where the disciples are used to all the way to the other side, which means non-kosher, which means Rome, which means power. And they get scared, the disciples. They're not used to these new territories. This is called inductive teaching. Jesus wants to teach them a lesson. You have to go out of your comfort zone and to conquer the world. Which means we're moving from Herod Antipas territories to Herod Philippi. And as you notice, every time Jesus tells them, let us go to the other side, they get so scared. And something also bad happens. One time a storm took place, which we're going to talk about. Another time a demon-possessed man showed up. Now I'll stretch my arm and point to the southwest side of the lake. And point for them the town of Tiberias, which we can see it today in the far horizon. And in the first century, it was a Roman Hellenized town, which means Hellenized, it had a Jewish population, which means Jews adopting and accepting the Roman way of life and the Roman principles and wanted to live with the power. And for example, archaeologists found a synagogue in Tiberias. And inside the synagogue on the floor, they found a zodiac, a mosaic, a calendar of a Roman symbols inside this calendar. A Roman zodiac. What is a Roman zodiac calendar doing in a Jewish synagogue in Tiberias? This shows us how the Jews were Hellenized. So, there were three areas. Three Herods and three areas. We mentioned the three Herods, the brothers Antipas, Philippi, and Archelaus. And the three areas are the Jewish towns, the simple, north and western side of the lake. In the eastern side of the lake, we have the Roman, the power, Rome, big cities, Decapolis. And we have the third kind of towns and villages in the western side southwestern side are Hellenized, like Tiberius. Now, let me speak a little bit about the names of the Sea of Galilee. We have so many names for this lake, but I can explain for you why we have so many names. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, they use the word Kinneret, which is used many times, and all the time mostly, in the Old Testament. Kinor, literally in Hebrew, means a harp, because the shape of the lake is like a harp. Also, Josephus Flavius used another Hellenized name, Genesar, he says, which goes from the original Hebrew word Genesarim, Genesarim, which literally means the gardens of the kings, which kings? The Hasmonean kings that ruled Galilee, from 167 BCE to 67 BC, almost for 100 years. And they founded 
all of these Jewish towns like Capernaum, like Chorazin, like Bethsaida, like Magdala, like Nazareth. Actually, John Hyrcanum was part of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans. He wanted to make Galilee more Jewish than Gentile. He had nationalistic movements. So when Jesus is staying in Capernaum and ministering in Bethsaida and Chorazin, these are new towns, not more than 100 years old in the time of Jesus. And we have another name, very familiar, the Sea of Galilee. And also we have another name, John, in the book of John, the Gospel, twice refers it as the Sea of Tiberias. So this is how it works when it comes for the names. I'll give you an example. If you are a Jew living in the first century in these small Jewish towns under Herod Antipas, you will use the word Ganesarim. If you are living in Tiberias in the first century under like Hellenism and the Roman control, you will say the Lake Tiberias because you're from Tiberias. So it depends where you are from and who you are. This is how you use the word the Sea of Galilee. And let us call it the Sea of Galilee today which is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's around 700 feet below sea level, or 210 meters. At its widest point, the lake measures 13 miles, or 21 kilometers, from north to south, and 7.5 miles, around 12 kilometers, from east to west. The lake's total area is 64 square miles, and its circumstances Preferences is about 32 miles. Its deepest point has been variously estimated between 140 to 200 feet, around 45 to 60 meters deep. And it's not very, like, it's shallow, it's not very deep as a lake. And its capacity is approximately 100 billion cubic feet of fresh water, makes it the largest fresh water lake over in the Middle East. We are talking about 13 miles by seven and a half miles it's not big in american western standards but this is a big thing in the middle east you see it's the largest freshwater lake ever found in the middle east water brings life this from the sea of galilee water is pumped to all israel it brings life and imagine why jesus healing ministry started in the largest body of fresh water in the middle east he brought life to people. He's light, remember? And life. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. We learned that about it in Kfarnachum. Today, the locals, we use the name Yam Kemeret. Yam means like not even sea. Anyway, Yam means a body of water in Hebrew. And originally, you heard about the Septuagint. At 70 AD, the order was to translate all the important books in the Roman Empire to Greek. And all the most important, and one of the most important books were the Bible. So when it was translated from Hebrew to Greek, Yam means anybody of water. The Greeks never came here. So they used the word Yam in order and put it Sea, Sea of Galilee. Okay? So this is why... The mistranslation make it the Sea of Galilee. But in the original Hebrew, Yam Kineret, which means anybody of water, fresh water.
And kinneret, the name kinneret, comes from the kinor, okay, from the harp. So today we use the word yam kinneret. And it's the primary source for all the nation, as I mentioned. And out of it flows the Jordan River. And it's very carefully regulated by the government of Israel. In the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, or the lake, there is a dam. The Dagania Dam was built in 1932 to control the water levels. And when the lake fills after good winter rain season, what's happening nowadays? There's so much water covering the lake. Now they are thinking to open the dam to allow more water to go to the Jordan River and from the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea. Let us talk about climate and storm patterns. I <laughs> joke with the group and ask them, do you want me to arrange for a storm? <laughs> and actually, we know when the storms come. So usually in the late evening, the winds pick up. Anyway, and most of them will answer, no, no, please don't do it. <laughs> I will answer, okay, <laughs> I will not do it. I will continue my explanation. Okay, just to give them a break. They know me, I'm so funny. It's like... Uh, just to break the ice and for them just to pay attention to. The climate around the Sea of Galilee, the temperature and is very warm because largely we are like below sea level when it comes to elevation. We are 600 feet below sea level or 210 meters. And the average temperature gets to the peak like in August, we can get to 95 Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius, that's the average in the summer season. And in January, average temperature is mild, around 55 Fahrenheit or 13 Celsius. But you have to understand that the Sea of Galilee is known for its violent storms, which can, can come up suddenly and be life-threatening for anyone in waters. I witnessed myself a lot of storms on the Sea of Galilee. Quick story. We were in a boat and I asked the group, do you want me to arrange for a storm? And all the group members said, yes, and I knew in the news what's happening. And we know tour guides when the wind pick up. But anyway, I didn't tell them that information. I said, OK. And when I was teaching, a storm came and it was so windy to an extent. The waves were so high, like a meter high that they had to evac evacuate all of us from the boat all the way back to the dock and all the way back to the bus. And the group thought, I'm a prophet. Not at all. Not at all. We know exactly what's happening with the weather at the Sea of Galilee and the situation at the lake because we are in the great African Rift Valley with steep hills surrounding the lake from all the sides. It's like a gorge. And when the cool air masses from the surrounding mountains collide with the warm air in the lake basin, in the bottom, winds sometimes funnel through the east-west oriented valleys in the Galilean country and rush down the western hillside of the lake. Imagine a cup of tea, and it's a hot cup of tea, and when you pour it, it's a round shape, and when you imagine that you blow a wind on it to cool the tea, and you can see how waves get formed on the cup of tea because of the blowing of the wind, the cold wind with the hot tea. Anyway, and the most violent storms, however, are caused by the fierce winds which blow off the Golan Heights from the east too. 
the eastern wind, especially meeting with the like uh, the northern winds that causes most of the like uh, storms. One such storm in March in 1992 sent waves 10 feet, three meters high, crashing into the downtown Tiberias and caused significant damage to the shores of Tiberias. Also, this is a very important uh, lake because of the commercial importance of the lake in Jesus' time in the first century. There were numerous and large harbors at that time, more even than today. Today we have only five harbors on the lake and these are used primarily for boats for tourists. And in the first century there were 12 harbors around the lake. Imagine 12 harbors. Magdala, the Jewish town in the first century, probably was the industrial center of the fishing trade. They had two docks there and two harbors. Capernaum had another two harbors, okay, Bethsaida also Tiberius. So there were 12 harbors around the lake in the first century. Today we know there are 35 species of fish in the waters of the lake and the Jordan River, but three types are the most common in the New Testament record. We know about the sardines, were staple of the locals diet, and there were also probably the two small fish which Jesus used to feed the multitude, the sardines. So the miracle of the loves and fishes, the two fish, is sardine, the small one. And we have the musht, which is the tilapia, musht, have long dorsal fins, which like resembles a comb. A comb in Hebrew, musht, or Arabic, the semitic. So musht comes from this word because of the dorsal fins looks like a, a comb. And this is most what is named by St. Peter fish also, which a lot of tourists just tilapia fish, white fish, that's right. And, and also we have like the third type, the catfish, which is not considered to be kosher because of its lack of scales. And this probably would have been brought to mind when Jesus referred to the bad fish that would be thrown away. That was the catfish. Matthew 13, 48. Look what the verse says. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. So it was the catfish. Now, that was only just part of the introduction. And now I'm going to start with teaching and set the stage for the group. And we're going to read from Mark 6, 45 to 52, Jesus walks on the water. But before that, I want also to give you the background. Remember, Jesus fed the 5,000 before the miracle of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. And also that was the time when John was beheaded by Herod Antipas. So let us read from Mark 6, 45 to 52. Jesus walks on the sea. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. 
This is the key verse. And would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Also, another key point we're going to learn about. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measures, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loves, because their heart was hardened. And to remind you, earlier, they had just food. They ate lunch, and the miracle of the multiplication took place. And notice now that Jesus, in purpose, put them in the boat to go through this storm. There was a reason why Jesus arranged all of that. And uh, remember, sometimes God allows us to be in storms. Such as like in our lives, depression, anxiety, crisis, financial crisis, fired from our jobs, broken, coronavirus, betrayed, feeling like no one likes us, being alone or feeling alone, no one cares about us, no relationships, or even church split up, or suddenly you're like sick. I'm not saying like uh, it's a real sickness, like cancer or like uh, something bad is happening to you. That all does not mean you are out of God's plan. That all does not mean or a sign that you are outside his will. That you got something wrong happening to your life. You have to understand this carefully. Jesus has put the disciples on a boat and the storm took place. He wants to teach them a lesson. The lesson is to depend on him, not on themselves. And you have to understand if storms take place, or sicknesses or diseases, you have to understand suffering is part of our Christian walk and faith. Because suffering will bring us more to him and cry out to him. And this is what happened. The disciples were suffering. He wants them to cry for him. God allows us to be in the storm for a reason. Let us read also the second passage and explain more. From John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, a parallel story. Jesus walks on the water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus has not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the water grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching to the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. Now the key verse is 20. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And look in John 6.15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
he was sitting on a mountain to pray. Like, look, is the scenery. He just put them in a boat, got them into the lake, and he went to a mountain to pray, and he was seeing them. And it says, in the fourth watch hour, he saw them straining against the oars and rowing and rowing, probably for a few hours, because it is getting dark. This is the picture as if God put us in the boat, sent us to the heart of the storm, and he just watching us. This is what we feel. And he let us struggle for a while. Why he allowed this? He wants us to get a point. He wanted his disciples to understand that we cannot do it alone. And that we need him and not to depend on ourselves and our strength or wisdom or bank accounts or homes or friends to an extent that we will get to a point to think if he does not save us, we will not be able to make it. How many times we got into trouble and we think that it's the end of the world and we don't see it. We have to depend on Jesus. Because if he does not show up, we'll not be safe or healed or forgiven. If he does not do something about me or do something for me, like finding a new job or helping me in my finances in the coronavirus, I will break. This is what we think. We're broken. If we don't allow him to enter in our marriages also, or relationships, we will break. He let us come to this point of desperation because he wants us to learn it doesn't work by our own strength. But we have to cry out. We have to go to Jesus. So he allows us to reach this point of complete desperation. So if you are reaching this stage in your life, you have no idea how much times I reach that stage personally. Full of desperation. And really like what to do. Nowadays with the coronavirus, what to do? So much responsibilities, no groups at all. But, but I know this is for a reason. Let me explain more. Look what it says in the gospel. That he was passing by. So why in the world he was watching them from a mountain and praying. And they came down on the water and just passed by them. Why? This is so hard. Because he wants them to call out for him. In so many circumstances and crises we pass, we forget about Jesus. We just think about ourselves. Jesus wants us to call out loud for him. He wants us to cry to him. Sometimes when we are in like depression or we complain or we just like give temper tandems or just talk and gossip and do so many things instead of calling his name and say, Jesus, save us. Yeshua, save us, help us. The key teaching I want to talk about is Jesus passing by. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 48. It's going to get another layer of teaching. Mark 
6:48. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, how many times the wind is against you? Anyway, we're used to that in the Middle East, in the Sea of Galilee. That's a common uh, teaching. Anyway, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. The Hebrew passing by is literally the word avar. Avar. Ein, vav, alif, resh. And if you are so much in distress and suffering, and if God is passing by, are you able to cry for him? Do you recognize him? And look, they thought it's a ghost. They did not recognize him first because they are so much into the moment of crisis. Let me explain more. Verse John 6 verse 48 says, He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, you see, again, he was about to pass them by. If Jesus went out to them, why would he be walking past them? Does he intend to come help them or not? This is being told from the disciples' perspective, just to know. It looks as if he is passing by and doesn't care about them. Okay, I like to use the word testament, the Old Testament. Use the word passing by. Let's read from Job chapter 9 verses 8 to 11 and the key verses 11. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Which literally treads on the waves of the sea literally means walks on water. Verse 9. He is the maker of the bear and orion, the Pleiades and the constantations of the south. 10. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Look what verse 11 says. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Remember the story of Job? Job is straining against his situation of his suffering. He lost everything. He's complaining. Job wouldn't be able to know because God is invisible, right? When he passes by, no one can see him. Also, the Hebrew word passes by here in Job, in verse 11, is Avar. Because Job is so much self-centered in his crisis, and the Spirit of the Lord is passing by, he can't see it even. So this is the same language. Does it find you like Sounds familiar to you? God passing by. Also another reference. Exodus 33, 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name. The Lord is your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, passing by. Also, Avar. And also in Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses. You see, 
avar mimul Moshe, which means he passed in front of Moses, his presence, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So the word avar in Hebrew is used in reference to God passing by Moses. So in Exodus chapter chapter 33 and 34, God is revealing himself through the old covenant. Job was training against his suffering. The children of Israel were training against the bondage in Egypt. Notice that in both what I read, Exodus 33:19 and 34:6, God is passing by. He reveals his name, his character, who he is, his presence, his heart. And he is a compassionate God. When Jesus passed by them on the boat, he is a compassionate God. He is there with them, but they did not recognize it. Every time you pass through crisis in your life, there is a reason for that. Even the coronavirus today in the world, still God is here. There is a reason. He wants to restore the people to call for him. He wants to restore the church to call for him because he's full of mercy and love. Because he wants to help those who are crying and out in distress. And now in Job passage, God is declared to be the one who walks on water. Where in the Exodus story, does God demonstrate his power over the waters? Remember the Red Sea? And what does it he say to them right before he parts the Red Sea? Look what's written in Exodus 14, 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to still. So God's passing by Moses to take place during the crossing of the Red Sea. Also, where all it happened? At a mountain. Which mountain? Mount Sinai. God has sent his wind on the mountain to declare about himself. And also, another mountain where God declared about himself who he is is the Sermon on the Mount, not far from here. So this is not the only time that God appears in his presence to someone on a mountain. Let me stretch you more with another story. The Lord appears to Elijah on Mount Horeb. He passed by. Look what is written in 1 Kings 19, 8 to 13. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The same word in this verse, pass by, is afar. The same word used when Jesus appeared to help the disciples on the boat. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
after the wind there was an earthquake but the lord was not in the earthquake after the earthquake came a fire but the lord was not in the fire and after the fire came a gentle whisper when elijah heard it he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave then a voice said to him what are you doing here elijah remember a cave where did jesus return back in a cave he was watching them from a mountain from a cave all right the aronomous cave i just thought about that cave which is in the north and western side of the lake so the bottom line god appears to elijah and look verse 11 what it says the lord said go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the lord for the lord is about to pass by the same hebrew word avar what is Elijah straining at? You know, remember the story, the fact that Jezebel wants to kill him and he's going to lose his life and he's despairing his like, life and so much depressed and so much in crisis mode. So where does God show his power? Over the storm. In the wind that shows up on the mountain Remember also in Mark 6, the disciples are not getting anywhere because the wind is against them. And remember in the Exodus story, it's the great wind from God that pushed back the Red Sea. And notice in verse 11, it says, Yahuwah is going to pass by. You see, Yahuwah is going to pass by. Again, the use of the divine name. Now, all of that, just to get you back to the story in Mark. So, if we place these stories in order of chronology, we have in Job a person who is suffering, who laments the fact that even if God walked upon the water, he would not be able to see him. We have then the story of the Exodus, a story where people are suffering, and God comes and reveals his name to them and demonstrates his power over the water and tells them, people, do not be afraid, for I am. He passes by Moses, but Moses only sees part of God's glory. And then the story after it, first King Elijah is suffering because of the persecution of Jezebel. But God, Yahweh, comes and declares his name, reveals his power over the wind, and then reveals himself to Elijah but only in a still, small voice. Mark verse 49, 52. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. When he say it's I, it means I am Yahweh. He is declaring who he is to them. Then he climbed into the boat with him, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, verse 52, for they had not understood about the loves. Their hearts were hardened. So, what do we learn here? What does Jesus say to them in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the crisis? He says to them, do not be afraid, it is I. And remember, he just made a miracle. The loves and fishes, he gave them the food. They did not see him. 
They loved to follow the food rather than to follow himself. They did not recognize him as Yahweh, as God. This is why he put them on the lake to teach them a lesson, to make a storm. Sometimes the storms happens to us as a wake-up call to recognize who is God. He is like trying to disciple the disciples, to teach them. He's so much like frustrated. He have to go down to Jerusalem. They have to carry the message after him. And still they did not recognize him. Anyway, let us go more another layer. Here, when Jesus said, don't be afraid, it is I, God comes and reveals his name. He demonstrates his power over the water and tells his people, do not be afraid for I am. I am, I am in Hebrew means Yahuwah. When Yahuwah comes and declares his name, shows his power. It shows who he is. Actually, it reveals his power. Remember I said Yahuwah, the name, come from the Hebrew. Haya, the past. Hoveh, the present. Yehyeh, the future. I am the past. I am the present. I am the future. I am powerful. And he's telling like the disciples in the middle of the storm, do not be afraid. He's telling Elijah, do not be afraid. He's telling Moses and the Jewish people, do not be afraid. He's telling Job, do not be afraid. It is I, Yahuwah, God. I am the name Yahuwah. And what happens when Jesus utters his divine name? There will be a full manifestation of God himself. And everything gets back in order and the storms will disappear. That's in the heart of the people. Even if there's storms in your lives, you have no idea what storms are in my lives. But because I have the name of God and his presence in my life, I am above all the storms. When the storms come, I rejoice. You know why? Because I know that there's a reason God allowed it to make me deeper, to build me up. When storms come to your life, it should not affect you or shake you or move you. You have to trust in the name of Yahweh, in the manifestation of God himself, because everything will be still in his presence. Look what is written in Mark 6, 49 and 50. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Before of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. I am God. He wants us to see him. He wants us to come near to him. And this is what is happening. Look, Jesus climbs into the boat when they cried out to him. And the winds die down immediately. All of this happened so that the disciples might understand that Jesus is the full manifestation of God himself. And what the disciples got to experience was not an unknowable God. It was the experience of God in human 
from totally and completely visible and accessible to them. He is telling them, I am God down in a physical in the physical manifestation is so powerful and I just want to challenge you what is your reaction during this storm of coronavirus if you lost your business or if you just was fired from work and of course you've been affected or your family has been affected staying at home what is your reaction during all of that let me read for you from scripture to explain what I mean. Look at Isaiah 43, 1-7. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do you see the use of the word again? I am. I am God with you. Jesus is God's presence with us. Do not be afraid of anything. Is there chaos in your life? Are you straining at something in your life? Know this. God has sent you into the middle of the storm so that he can appear to you, to walk with you, and his presence to surround you. And the purpose of what I'm sharing is that you might experience God here in the midst of the crisis and walk with him, even if the world is panicking. And remember, when you are in the storm, and by the way, I'm preaching to myself and teaching, not only to you. When you are in the middle of the storm, and you're desperate, cry out to Jesus because he will speak to you through his words. How many times when you were in trouble, you called for his name and he showed up. Remember that. And gave you comfort and immediately he assures you by the power of his spirit that he walks with you, beside you in the storms. Let's continue. Matthew 14, 28, 33. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And look what Peter said. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Look what verse 29 says. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. 
Even in the middle of the storm, he walked in the water. Peter literally walked on water. And then only when he doubted, he started to fall down. Jesus immediately took his hands and caught him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When he grabbed Peter's hand, he was also looking by his eyes and speaking to the other disciples in the boat. Why are you doubting in me? Why did you not step out of the boat? Why did you not come out? Where is your faith? I have been with you, watching you all the time, never left you. If you want to be a real disciple, you need to give it all. <laughs> this is what he's telling them. You need to surrender it all and trust him completely and have faith in him. Not only on Sunday churches, every day, like you go on Sunday, here is faith, here is God. No, you have to take him every day of your life. Jesus is telling the disciples, you have to trust me fully and completely. And this is the challenge Jesus is telling them. So maybe God allows a storm to come into your life at a specific time in your life because he wants to teach you how to trust him completely. Just step out of your comfort zone. Step out of your boat and walk with him. You know, things start to change in my life when I've seen a lot of healings taking place and a lot of miracles and the kingdom of heaven, just manifestation and the power of God and experiencing the physical round of the spirit around me is the moment when I went out the boat and trusted him completely and surrendered fully to him. He wants us to know and to remember that we are not alone. And he wants us to increase our faith in him. Nothing helps us, not our wealth, not our money, not our great personality, not our gifts, not our families, and even not our pastor. No one will help you in crisis. Only walking with him will help to heal your heart and my heart. And I would like, like to give the group a moment of silence. And I would love to share with them with one of my favorite worship songs on the Sea of Galilee, Oceans, where feet may fail. And during worshiping and hearing this song, there will be a strong presence of God and His Spirit. And these are the moments for the group to absorb the teachings. These are the moments of God's presence. And after that, we will disembark the boat and head to our final destination for the day, to the Valley of the Doves. That will be the next teaching, the Via Mars. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time and for your patience. And I'm excited because in two weeks, by the end of this month, I will release my third book, Heading to the Holy Land. My first book was One Friday in Jerusalem, speak about my life story. The second book was like a journal study guide of Israel. And if you've been before in the Holy Land or you're coming in the future to the Holy Land, I advise you to get the paperback, uh, the copy, not the ebook.
for the one study guide in Israel because you can take notes and write notes wherever I'm teaching. And if you want to also to get this book, you can follow my podcast teachings and take notes at every site. It's a very helpful journal, but the third book that I'm excited about is coming soon. It's heading to the Holy Land and it will have all what you need to arrange and to prepare you before you come to Israel, how you can be able to bring a group in the near future. So I'm excited about it and I will update you when the book is released. Thank you so much and really I enjoyed this teaching and it talked to me, to myself more than anything else. God bless you.